Hey everybody, welcome back to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael and I'm joined today by Digital Book World's own Mr. Jeremy Greenfield. Jeremy, what's the sap? A lot going on uh, in digital book publishing in the past couple of weeks, uh, especially when it comes to M&A and financial activity. So that's the half. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess everybody's been reporting sales figures uh, from Google to Amazon and, and publishers and everywhere in between. Uh, the biggest story, Jeremy, of course, is uh, the, the further consolidation of the publishing industry as News Corp has purchased Harlequin. That's correct. News Corp has acquired Harlequin and is going to make it a division of, of HarperCollins. Uh, HarperCollins is now, uh, should the revenues from Harlequin last year and HarperCollins last year be about the same, is, is getting close to being a $2 billion company and pretty solidly the second largest trade publisher in the world. You know, um, this is a strategic deal, and I think it's one that makes sense. Uh, HarperCollins, uh, they publish 90 Five percent plus all of their books in English, whereas Harlequin publishes in 34 language and publishes in a total of 100 international markets. So, uh, from a HarperCollins standpoint, uh, they have a lot to gain through the translation and international distribution into, say, Europe and in Asia Pacific. Yeah, I think that's the big takeaway from this. So the other thing being just in general the distribution channels. Um, but I think there's a, another area, a couple couple areas in which Harlequin or HarperCollins really benefits, and, and why this might have been an attractive acquisition. You know, one is verticalization. Um, you know, a lot of big publishers are now trying to create these vertical communities where they can, you know, market all of their romance books to romance readers and all of their cookbooks to people interested in cooking and all of their sci-fi books and to, and to sci-fi readers. Uh, and the second thing is a brand. You know, most big publishers don't really have a consumer-facing brand. Um, some consumers, you know, know Penguin or they might know an imprint like Tor uh, here and there that they they like. But generally, you know, people don't know publishers. They know authors. Um, and Harlequin is one of the very few publisher brands out there. There are, you know, dedicated Harlequin readers. And when people hear the, the word Harlequin, they know what it means. Apparently, the average Harlequin reader reads 100 books a year. That is very impressive. That puts them in, in the category of what we call power readers, uh, those who read about 100 books a year or more. There are some who read up to three or 400 books a year. Uh, and you think of, of power readers and you think, wow, this person must be like a super genius you know, and has read everything out there. Um, but a lot of the power readers you know, go through, you know, they love romance and they read like 100 romance books a year. They love you know, westerns and they read 100 westerns a year. They love mysteries and they read 100 mysteries a year. So that's kind of the profile of your typical power readers. But, but there are some out there that uh, read everything. So, Jeremy, it's safe to say that you know a lot of authors. And um, one thing that authors sometimes don't like is to be pigeonholed into one genre. Do you think that this deal with HarperCollins will allow Harlequin writers that have only done romance to be able to explore other options and perhaps instead of dealing with Harlequin, they could deal with HarperCollins and uh, do pull a J.K. Rowling, you know, do a mystery, uh, do like a political thriller. Do you think that's a realistic proposition? Um, you know, I think that it's possible that that's something that you'll see, but not because of the acquisition. Um, I think it's possible it's something you'll see because, you know, in the past, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, it was really, really, really difficult 
to, to move from one or the other. You know, if you were an author who had a successful series of romance novels under a pen name or under your own name, um, you know, to, to write outside of that genre, very few agents or editors would recommend that. It would be very hard for you to get published. You know, you would hear things like, um, you know, you're, you, this is what you do. You're this kind of author, pigeonholing, exactly as you said. So why don't you, you know, stick to that? Readers won't recognize you, uh, you know, going outside of that. Um, but now, you know, authors can publish themselves. And so a lot of authors, when meeting with that message three or four years ago, would say, all right, well, I'm going to publish this book myself, or I'm going to try to do that. And I think um, that that idea of that happening has kind of seeped through the industry and I think agents are author and, and, and editors are much more open-minded to the idea that authors can uh, go outside of their genre or their comfort zone or where they've been pigeonholed to. I don't think it necessarily means you're going to see a ton of authors doing it, but I think it's, it's a little bit more likely today than before. Um, so I think you know it's just as likely that a Harlequin author could branch out and work with someone at Simon & Schuster, for instance, on a, on a new title and a new genre, rather than necessarily only someone at HarperCollins. But I think it's more about what's happening in the industry. So another big news item, at least I thought so, was Wattpad getting into the digital publishing game. Uh, Wattpad popularized the notion of serialized fiction and they have millions of readers and authors that visit their site every week, every month. Um, a lot of their authors uh, find themselves being able to grow because they'll write a chapter, they'll get immediate feedback from the community, you know, develop a devote following, and then uh, continue and, and persevere. Uh, Wattpad is using Amazon Create Space to make the physical versions of the book available, and they've also got distribution agreements with uh, Amazon, Apple, and Kobo. Uh, they're publishing two books. Uh, one author has had 100 million reads total, and uh, wow. another book um, called My Wattpad Love has been read 19 million times on the site. Uh, my question, Jeremy, is... Um, a lot of people who read ebooks won't really go to a site and, on, like Wattpad and read the serialized fiction, but will the people that read the serialized fiction for free on Wattpad buy the book? I think that you, we will be surprised by how often they do. Um, I think many of them won't, um, but I think more of them will than you would expect. I think we're, we've entered an era in media consumption where uh, readers and, and viewers want to feel and see and touch and interact with uh, the things that they like on many, many, many levels. And I think part of that is, you know, if they, you know, saw, if they read all of uh, a blog and that blog has been turned into a book with a little bit of extra content, that they will uh, be pretty likely to go out and buy the book compared to someone who's no familiarity with it um, because they want to see and feel and touch it from a different angle and sort of support it. And I also think that, you know, readers and viewers are, you know, they understand that media is changing and that you get a lot of stuff for free and that if they want to keep on seeing and reading the stuff they like, they're going to have to support it financially in one way or another. So um, I don't think that everyone feels that way, but I think that we will be surprised with the, uh, the number of sales that these things generate. And I think, you know, an author who's had 100 million views on Wattpad, um, you know, that to me is gold. I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that other publishers haven't already picked up on that person. So getting to one of the industry's favorite whipping boys, Amazon, uh, did you hear about Amazon giving customers the option to buy using Twitter hashtags? This is brand new and I know very little about it, so why don't you tell me? Okay, so 
Twitter users can link their profiles to their Amazon account and automatically add items to their shopping cart if they reply to a tweet that contains an Amazon product link with a hashtag. So if you're like a, a vendor and you sell things on Amazon, you could actually use the hashtag Amazon cart to add that product item to your cart. So let's say any author is uh, advertising their book and has an Amazon product linked. You could actually type Amazon cart and then add that book to your cart. So this isn't something that anyone's talked about. They've more or less talked about Amazon's, you know, millions of other products, air fresheners, dog, like, I don't know, dog spa, like peripherals, uh, whatever people buy on Amazon. I mean, I don't buy on Amazon, so I don't know. But do you think that this Amazon cart business, do you think that this would be a valuable author tool in order to be able to get people to buy books on Twitter? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, Twitter is a very attractive social media platform for authors, editors, agents, etc. I mean, the book publishing industry is really crazy about Twitter. Um, but if you talk to the marketers who have to actually crunch the numbers, um, you know, Twitter is not the favorite place to, to advertise or to generate actual sales. You know, they'll tell you, well, it's about engagement, it's about keeping in touch with the audience. And these things, you know, I think everyone acknowledges are, are potentially, if not definitely, very important. Um, you know, it's creating that connection, though between you know, seeing a tweet, discovering something, engaging with something, and then buying something. Uh, so I think you know, anything where the number of steps between uh, learning about something or, or being exposed to something and actually being able to purchase it, anytime when that's reduced, um, I think it, it, can, it can make an impact. Uh, it's not exactly the easiest thing in the world to reply with a specific hashtag that you have to know about and remember, etc. Um, but I do think it's something that could be very valuable, and if authors and marketers pick up on it and start telling people to do it, um, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people do it. But I think you know it's more about Amazon being there for its consumers to allow them the easiest, fastest ways to uh, to shop with them. So regular lis listeners of the show might have uh, realized that you weren't on a show last week, but you were in Colorado for an event. What was the event? Yes, I spoke at the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association Leadership Conference in Colorado Springs, and I was there for two uh, panels. Well, one was a, a panel among the largest Christian publishers talking about you know, how they're going digital, uh, and the other was a talk I gave about authors and sort of what their motivations are and what they want. But the, the panel I thought was more interesting um, because you know, the Christian publishing market is, is not a huge part of the trade publishing market, but, it, but it's there. Uh, and it's in the single digits um, percentage-wise in the U.S., but it's a significant market with hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And uh, these publishers are also going digital, and they have different kinds of products that they sell that are, some of them are very, very attractive for digital, and some of them aren't. So you, know, you can imagine that Bible study software has really taken off, and that's, that's something we saw even this week. HarperCollins Christian, which is the largest Christian publisher in the U.S., acquired Olive Bible Software, which is a uh, Bible software and e-commerce platform. I was just going to um, mention that. Yeah, and, 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 and the other uh, thing is that there are lots of books that are not very good for digital for uh, Christian publishers, like gifts is a huge thing in the Christian publishing market. You know, you give a gift of a Bible or a devotional or a prayer book to somebody special in your life um, or at a, on a special occasion, and that doesn't really work well digitally. So all told, these publishers are in sort of the 10 to 15% digital when it comes to revenue, so they're on a different scale than a lot of the big fiction publishers. 
Um, but like a lot of the big publishers, you know, fiction is really leading the way for them, and there's a, a big Christian fiction market out there. So it was a really interesting conference, and I think uh, we all learned a lot. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I, I actually thought that the Olive Tree purchase was savvy because Olive Tree – um, their apps do tremendously well. I know that their free, their only free app, uh, I believe it's called Olive Tree Bible Study. Uh, it's been downloaded uh, close to about 80, uh, 8 million times just on Google Play and another 1.5 million times on our own Goody Reader App Store. And, uh, you know, the Christian market is, is huge when it comes to apps because um, there isn't really too many free options out there to be able to uh, let you read, say, the King James Bible or uh, the various other, you know, editions. With the Bible, there, there's all sorts of editions out there. And I, I found through metrics with our Goody Reader App Store that Olive Tree, uh, the Jehovah Witness uh, study guides, those seem to be almost the top apps downloaded on a monthly basis, which actually surprised me. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, you know, we heard at the conference that there are some successes with apps, but you have to understand these Christian publishers, you know, it, it's, a, it's sort of a microcosm of the industry. There are a couple of big ones and a lot of really small ones. And so the really small ones um, may not be able to invest in creating things like uh, apps the way that some of the larger, one can, larger ones can. So we've seen the same thing uh, as with other parts of the industry that, there have been some successes, there have been some failures. Publishers in general feel a little bit snake bit when it comes to apps, um, but they're also uh, experimenting with them, and there have been some big successes. So, Jeremy, you're, you're a fellow that likes to uh, get his two cents in. You're a, a prolific public speaker. One can say that uh, you, you like to debate. And sure. DBW is unveiling a new series that is taking the taking debating to another level. Well, I am very proud of this and happy about this, and I am excited about where this is going to go. And I've got to tell you that we already have a lot of people uh, sign up for it, even though we just announced it yesterday. Uh, we're, we're considering a series called DBW Debates, but we're doing one to start out to see how it goes, and it's about uh, ebook subscription services. So the way this is going to work is that we, are, we put together two teams of two, to debate the following proposition. Uh, and I'm, I'm approximating here because I don't have it right in front of me, but the success of ebook subscription services will be good for authors, publishers, and readers. So they're going to debate that. Two of the people are going to be for the proposition that yes, ebook subscription services will be good for authors, publishers, and readers. And the other two are going to debate against it that no, ebook subscription services will not be good for authors, publishers, and readers. And we very specifically chose that statement because you know, if you're a reader who reads tons and tons of books and you get to pay $10 a month instead of hundreds of dollars a month uh, for an ebook subscription service, you know, you save a lot of money and you get a really good experience. Um, maybe you can discover new books that you never thought you could discover before. Um, but then authors and publishers aren't going to get the same amount of money. Or maybe the, the, the startup itself won't get the same amount of money uh, from, from, from readers as they would beforehand. Um, so I feel like there are a lot of angles here that they can argue, and there really is no clear-cut, obvious right answer. Um, uh, you know, and we'll see what the audience decides. So the way this is going to work is that when the audience sits down for the webcast, they're going to be asked to vote on the proposition, um, whether they think uh, 
ebook subscription services will be good for authors, publishers, and readers, whether they agree, disagree, or don't have an opinion on that statement. And then after the hour of debate, they'll get to vote again, and we'll see who changed the most minds. Um, the way the debate itself is going to work is that each person uh, will get an opening statement. So there will be four opening statements. Then there will be a middle period in which we allow them to debate each other and take questions from the audience. And then there will be a closing statement. Um, and we've got four great debaters. We have uh, uh, Andrew Weinberg from Scribd and um, uh, Mark Coker from Smashwords arguing for the proposition. And then we've got Gareth Cuddy from EPUB Direct, which is the largest ebook distributor in Europe. Um, and, uh, and Jonathan Bloom from The Street, who has written uh, about negatively about ebook subscription services, arguing against the proposition. It's free for anyone to attend. It's June 11th um, uh, online, and from noon to 1. And you can sign up at digitalbookworld.com. Um, that sounds actually very interesting. I'll have to make sure to check that out. Um, okay, so when it comes to uh, like the industry, I guess over the last two weeks, has there been anything that's really grabbed your attention? Because as we know, uh, every day a ton of press releases come out, all sorts of startups are, are announced. Is there anything that you found compelling? Well, I really would be remiss in, in mentioning, um, I think, another big piece of news that happened uh, in the industry the past couple of weeks, which is that Digital Book World's parent company, F&W Media, which is a very large book publisher, bookseller. Um, you know, we publish magazines, we put on conferences, we we, pub we produce television shows. We're all over the place, media-wise. Um, has just been acquired by a private equity group, a small New York private equity shop uh, called Tinicum. Uh, and so it is still managed, partially management-owned, but it's majority private equity-owned. And I think, you know, for F&W, well, it's now called F&W a content and e-commerce company. But for F&W, this is, I think, going to be an exciting new chapter, and we're going to see uh, this company grow, I think, uh, through probably acquisition, but also organically over the next couple of years. And, and who knows? Uh, that actually sounds uh, uh, fairly interesting. Um, I guess it's too early to say, you know, what will change, but, you know, we'll, we'll notice changes, hopefully, you know, maybe in like a year or two as you can have a little bit more funds to scale up and, and, and to do more things, right? Well, you know, uh, F&W has been very acquisitive over the past couple of years. It acquired uh, Interweave Publications, it acquired, uh, or Interweave Media, I believe it was called, it acquired New Track Media. Um, it's made a lot of acquisitions over the past uh, couple of years, and those are just two of, of many, the two largest ones, I think. Um, I think F&W is going to continue to acquire stuff. I think we're going to see it happen sooner rather than later. I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to see more acquisitions this year. Um, there's plenty of time left in the year for more acquisitions. Usually with private equity um, purchases, you know, not usually, but often there are uh, you know, costs taken out of the business and things are shut down and people are let go. Uh, I, I don't necessarily see that happening with F&W. You know, the company has been um, very, very clear about where it wants to make investments and where it wants, you know, to, to, to have people working on things and, you know, through some of the acquisitions it has, cut things out of the company and let certain people uh, go, unfortunately, because of that. So I think F&W, before the private equity acquisition, was already at a place um, you know, a pretty satisfactory place when it comes to staffing levels and, and where the investments are going. 
Um, so I don't see a lot of that activity happening, but anything could happen. I, I do expect we'll see more acquisitions in the coming year or two. So in terms of e-reader news, Mother's Day is uh, right around the corner, and Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo are all offering about $20 off many of their popular e-readers. So you can get uh, a Kindle uh, for about $49. You can get a Kobo uh any type of Kobo device at about twenty to forty dollars off. Uh, even Barnes and Noble is uh, slashing the price on the Nook Glowlight. I believe you can get it for about seventy nine dollars right now. So if you want to get your mom an e-reader uh, for Mother's Day, this is a pretty good time. All of the deals are available now, uh, both online and actually in the physical stores. Uh, I believe that they're U.S. Uh, only, so it's only applicable to people that live in the good old U.S. Of A, and not too relevant to people in Canada, but the Kobo deal is uh, available uh, in both Canada and the US. So, uh, Jeremy, with deals like this, would it, uh, would, you know, do you think that they're going to sell more e readers? Um, I don't think that it's going to make a huge difference in. Uh, actual e-reader sales. I think it's going to be, it's going to tip the scales for that small segment of buyers, small but important segment of buyers who are sort of on the fence, but then they see that there's a deal available and that will sort of tip them over the edge. I don't think this is going to get people who weren't considering an e-reader purchase, you know, out there going and buying e-readers. Um, so maybe a, a small bump, not a huge bump. Um, I, people in general are, are not as interested in those devices as they, as they have been uh, in the past unfortunately, uh, for the book publishers and for the e-reader the e companies. Um, but, you know, I do think this will, will probably make a, 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 small, a small difference. Um, you know, that said, I, I don't think that the publishers need to, or that, that the retailers need to sell that many more e-readers to make a difference for them. I mean, they've got their apps on all the devices, but as we know, someone who owns one of their e-readers is much, much more likely to to buy and read lots of e-books. So even just a couple of extra sales can make a difference to them. Well. I think Kobo and Amazon might see a few decreased sales. Amazon discontinued the Amazon Kindle DX, which was their 9.7-inch e-reader. Kobo's discontinued their Kobo Mini, which was their 5-inch e-reader. So it seems as though that 6-inch devices are dominating the industry, and anything up and anything down is being discontinued left, right, and center. Uh, one of the final things, Jeremy, I wanted to get your thoughts about is... The Kobo and Sony situation. Uh, Sony's been in the news a lot, uh, killing their PC division, almost getting out of televisions completely, abandoning the the U.S. market and Canadian market for their bookstore, and transitioning everything to Kobo. Now, usually in September, Sony announces a new e-reader, and by about this time, we start to hear murmurings on what it's about, maybe an FCC application. We haven't heard anything yet. But I did hear a very interesting rumor that Sony and Kobo might actually be collaborating on a new e-reader where Sony will issue uh, a new device with uh, running Android, but it'll have a lot of the 
elements of the Kobo ecosystem in there, including the library, the ability to buy books from Kobo, and using the same hardware, they'll be able to market it to international markets where the Sony Reader Store is still viable. So North Americans will have one version of it, which will be just Kobo, and Europeans and Australians will have another version of it, which will tie into Sony. How likely do you think that this will occur? I don't know, but I will tell you this. If they want to sell any of them, they better give it a better name than any of the preceding Sony e-readers, which have ridiculously silly names like RS-482. Um, I don't believe that's the actual name of one of the e-readers, but it, it approximates it pretty well. So I think they need to work on their marketing a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I find that the e-readers that sell the least often have terrible names like the last you know they used to release names like uh, the sony daily edition uh the sony pocket the sony reader now it's the sony prst1 the prst2 the prst3 it's like uh couldn't you think of a more bookish sounding name uh can you think of something that's like a little bit more compelling it makes me wonder like who's in charge of like naming devices when it's like okay let's just like pick something from a spreadsheet oh here we go you know but yeah i mean sony was was legendary at naming consumer electronics when it had the walkman yeah and then it had the discman and after that it's been all downhill yeah uh, I totally concur. So uh, you've been listening to the Goody Reader Radio Show with Michael and Jeremy. We usually do the show every Monday, so stay tuned uh, for future episodes on uh, goodyreader.com slash digitalbookworld.com. And uh, Jeremy, final thoughts? Uh, I am going to Boston next week to uh, participate in one of my company's conferences that has nothing to do with ebooks, the How Design Live conference which I'm very excited for. And if you are a designer or in graphic design, you should check it out, at least pay attention on Twitter. Um, but I'm also going to be visiting with some Boston-based book publishers, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm sure I'll have a lot of great stuff to bring back to you. Um, SID Display Week, I believe, is really early next month, and uh, we're going to be live on the scene in uh, San Diego. So if you're involved in uh, the you know, the LCD, LED, e-ink space, uh, you can book an appointment with us. You can send me an email at michael at goodereader.com. Uh, we'll be there in San Diego for a few days uh, to give you guys all the latest news on the e-paper digital signage front. Uh, any questions, concerns about the show, drop a comment on uh, the radio show link at Goody Reader. If you're listening to this on iTunes, SoundHound, uh, or a myriad of other sources, uh, make goodyreader.com your destination for all things e-readers and digitalbookworld.com for all things digital publishing. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for doing the show. Thanks, Michael. Everybody take care.